Well, I started uh, this series in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, I remember coming and saying, boy, Romans chapter 1 is about good news and it's about bad news. And we could consider the good news or we could consider the bad news, but in reality, as scripture comes to us, often there is this interplay, and if we don't understand the bad news, we never really understand the good news. So in Romans chapter 1, we read about God's righteousness, and then we read about godless unrighteousness. We read about God's forbearance, but we read about God's judgment for all. There was this continuing um, good news, bad news uh, progression, and the backdrop of today's conversation about the providence of God also must start with this bad news context. The bad news context being that we are always, ever hovering between the challenges of what it is to be a prodigal son and the challenges of what it is to act like the older brother, as depicted here in this painting from Rembrandt, those two poles always keeping us in unworthy opposition to uh, the love of God. And so we need, we're reminded, grace and mercy we need the gift of grace, which is getting those things which we don't deserve. And we need the gift of mercy, which is not getting those things that we do deserve. And if we don't start in a discussion about the sovereign election of God in history with this backdrop, that we are all unworthy to receive grace or mercy, then we can't go in a healthy manner into this discussion, which is a hard discussion for many people. And it's a hard discussion even for many of you in this room to have not only with others, but to have with God. And that is to consider the reality that scripture teaches clearly that God doesn't save all sinners. God saves some sinners. And so our discussion this morning, as we read the text from Romans chapter 9, 14 to 33 about God's sovereign election in history, wrestles with this fundamental truth in biblical theology. And, um, and that's where we're going to begin. I want to start with some context, and then we're going to wrestle with the text. And then I'm going to share with you some theological implications from the text. And then we're going to talk about some practical uh, considerations that uh, fall out of the text. So that's how we're kind of organizing things. And I just want to begin by picking up where Kyle left off last week when he was talking about the first part of chapter 9. 
And he spoke of a couple of critical pieces of context that are important to have in mind. The first is he talked about how Paul was wrestling with his readers, his Jewish readers, in communicating to them the fundamental principle that Israel has never been the true Israel. In other words, the true Israel, the invisible church, to use terms that we would use today, is a subset of Israel or the church as we would understand it today. True Israel is a subset of Israel, not all those who said, I am of Israel, were actually God's chosen people, God's people. The second thing that Kyle highlighted in his context for this passage was this idea of theodicy. Theodicy and learn to pronounce.com clearly wants you to know that this comes from them. Um, oh, you can't see it on the screen. I can see it on my screen. Uh, theodicy is a noun that describes the branch of theology that defends God's goodness and justice in the face of the existence of evil. I, I would modify that, of course, to say that it is the branch of theology that speaks to God's goodness and justice in the perceived face of the existence of evil. But Paul said this about one other word of context. And this last word of context is just to highlight something about the mind of God in this conversation. We are all bringing the minds of men to this discussion and trying to consider or understand the mind of God. And by way of kind, have known nothing of the world other than their experience inside why somebody who's in... You could actually understand how that person, finite view, be right. But of the boxcar and the definitive direct... If they did have that view... So all of the seeming um, contradiction, goodness and rightness, is important content. Chapter 9, beginning with verse, as we read in the Proverbs, but it is the purpose of... I was in college and given it... Can you imagine being on a train ride like this, by the way? As I always do, sat down with Romans 9, looked up on Google, after means, the world means, and... Actually, in this case, the algorithms are this. A giver has, and to withhold a gift for people like you gift or deserved it, right to give a gift to whomever he pleases. It is God's decision whether he chooses that God's election does not on God's mercy. To the text now, and worth verse 14. By no means have compassion on whom I have compassion, God who has mercy that I might show my power in So then he has hardens. Uh, when I went off to Armenian, of course, and I went to, and so I moved what the sovereignty, I encountered passages me to these places. And when Romans, and how as we were just 
the hardening and use it. What that meant on this whole thing, um, it was nine, it was this passage where Paul says, blessed, it's context for everything that Paul, as believers, grounding us, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as he chose us in, should be holy and blameless, OCD passage to me, because he destined us for adopting to the purpose, the mystery of his will, and for the fullness of time. In him we have obtained an end by him who works all of him who works all. It's really, it's academically. I should, I did, I decided to study from really personal school with people. And I remember black sweatshirt, Nietzsche the back of the sweatshirt which said Nietzsche it at school and then more people engaged me reading all of famous atheists who for whatever reason God allowed him to be raised up an example of how it gets reading his books and just trying to understand thought to the announcement against God World. But there was more than reconsider it. Who, like Chris Hitchens, witty, articulate, it was as his brother stories in all of our lives take real and personal arrow. And this is about hair. This is about people maybe in a word of God. Why does he, God, still find fault back to God? Will this? Has the potter and another for dishonorable use? Has endured with much patience in order he has prepared beforehand for glory. From the Jews only. Some of you have seen the song uh, that he has performed with a really talented band. Um, And... It's called Clay Potts, and Doug Wilson uh, effectively throughout the song is playing off of this passage from Romans chapter 9, and he's taking Play Potts as this music video is unfolding, and they're playing almost like a softball game, and the Clay Potts are being tossed and one of the musicians stands up with a bat and smashes the clay pot. And on it goes. The song, by the way, is flat out brilliant. It is really great music. It's a country folk style with an amazing Scottish band. Um, the refrain in the song is, oh, what do you say? What do you say? <laughs> Hold your peace rebellious pot, the Lord is God, and you are not. Now, we can say different things about that video. Uh, I went back through the lyrics again last night, and there's not a word of the lyrics that isn't almost directly from Scripture. Um, And it's witty, But to me, I'm going back to the painting from Rembrandt here. It um, puts us in a place where, to me, we're 
wrong-headed on this whole discussion. It's actually in many ways unhelpful, and in many ways it points us to the posture with the folded hands and the consternation on the face look of the elder brother, does it not, in this scene. I much prefer J.I. Packer's words. Nobody has influenced me more on this subject, by the way, than Calvin and J.I. Packer and R.C. Sproul. Packer says this, what's the motive for evangelizing? Is it to win an argument? Was the context of him asking. Was it to win an argument and make a bloody point? No, there are in fact two motives that should spur us constantly to evangelize, to bear witness for Christ. The first is a love of God and concern for his glory, and the second is a love of man and concern for his welfare. It's a different spirit, I think, altogether as we move into this passage. Let's go back to the text. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So just to go back to this simplistic visual, Paul is speaking to an audience who included many people who thought, hey, I am a believer. I am part of Israel. Therefore, ergo, I am saved. I am one of the called. I am one of the elect by virtue of that. And Paul in this passage is saying, no, 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 remember the true Israel is a subset of Israel. And more than that, true Israel is actually a much smaller subset of Israel than you think. And then he introduces in that passage the startling reality that, and by the way, in that small subset, <laughs> there is true Israel as in the Jews and there is true Israel as in the Gentiles. And those are the people whom God has called and God has elected. So he's going back into this dialogue with people who are thinking that way. Wait a second, I'm Israel, I'm in, I'm called, I'm elect. And he's saying, no, 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 you need to think differently about that. So in response, he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." 
When I was um, growing up uh, as a uh, early teen, I went to Bible camp, and one of the passages that we are all required to memorize was Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is Paul making the same point from another passage, right? But I never memorized Ephesians 2.10, which says, For we are God's workmanship. The way that I memorized it was, Created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which he prepared in advance for us to do. That, that is a sovereign God calling us to work that was prepared for us to do before the foundations of time. So election and calling you know, runs not just to the discussion of who is part of God's family by grace and by mercy or who's not, but also even to the work um, that we're doing in the world. Okay, so I want to talk about some theological implications from this passage, the back half of Romans 9 that we've just read. And I'm going to just touch on these very briefly, but I think every one of these points is really important in terms of theological implications from this passage in Romans 9 that we just read. Um, it maybe goes without saying, but prophecy is not something we should assume can happen if God was not sovereign over all things. For him to ordain, with reference to this picture, that Mary would be full to term when Herod would be moved, I love the way that it's been described, like the pen in the hand of Dr. Olson, God moves the most powerful man on earth to do exactly what needed to be done in order that Mary and Joseph would come to the city of David so that baby could be born as foretold that baby Messiah, right? Prophecy doesn't happen without the providential um, ordering of things by God, I want you to think about prayer for a moment. Um, I have been wrestling, <laughs> I suppose all my days, but more recently, it seems, with the simple exhortation that Jesus told us to focus on in our praying, thy will be done. George MacDonald famously said, there are only two types of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. And uh, this concept is um, just on me. It's been sitting on me for months in a different way, in a unique way. I think in part because we're, we're doing different projects out at the homestead, and when we do, I, I always say, as we're 
envisioning a plan, not wanting to be like the man who's building the barns. Everything, Lord willing. Everything, Lord willing. That's, that's a posture of prayer that recognizes the sovereignty of God in all things. And so that we don't get this confused, Packer puts it this way, the knowledge then that God is sovereign and grace and that we are impotent, for example, to win souls, should make us pray and keep praying. I, I want you to think carefully about that with me because there are a lot of people who say, well, if we believe in a sovereign God who's ordered and ordained all things, then um, we can just check out, right? But in reality, we're recognizing that we're not the one ordering things. Instead, um, we're to bow the knee and recognize who is the sovereign and yet be faithful in prayer to the sovereign and to keep um, praying. It brings us, you know, again, back to this um, portrait. Now, the third time I've shared Rembrandt's famous um, Return of the Prodigal Son scene because it also reminds us of penitence and the importance of seeing penitence through the lens of God's providence. If penitence is about me making a move to God, then I have a reason, really, to be proud in my penitence. When we know that grace and mercy are not due us, and that we have not earned it from the first turn, from the call, it is God's work, our posture with regard to our salvation and with regard to our penitence is different. C.S. Lewis wrote this, how is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? I am afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. Certainly not the God of the Bible, certainly not the God of scriptures. And, and this is a fundamental aspect of what should make all of us grateful to be part of a reformed church. A reformed church, in my view, um, can be described as a church that recognizes that we need a right-sized view of God and man. And this is a big, big deal as it relates to the matter of pride and as it relates to the matter of penitence. And, and I would say this too from the point of perspective, that it should banish from us the, the conversations of things happening to us out of luck or chance. In reality, even things that come to us that appear to be about luck or chance, like the drawing of a lot, come to us if we're framed in this way of thinking about a sovereign God, come to us by the Lord's appointment. And so, you know, how do we process that practically? We process it practically by saying in moments, am I a Romans 8, 28 man in this moment? 
Do I believe that this thing that has come to me that looks bad to me, that looks to me to be for my demise, can only come to me but through the hand of a loving God? And that, in fact, I believe that all things work together for the good for those who love God and are called according to its, his purposes. So um, those are some theological implications. It should, if we g- wrestle with this passage rightly, it should bring us to a place where we are thinking differently about the marvel, the miracle, if you will, of prophecy, um, the way that we approach prayer, the way that we approach penitence, the way that we approach pride, and the way that we approach perspective on history, not just history as in his story writ large, but our story, your story. Um, This is profound. And this was the big shift for me, by the way, This discussion that we're reading about in Romans chapter 9, this discussion to me was mostly about an intellectual theological debate. And then I came to a place where instead the doctrine of God's providence, including in the election of the true Israel, became the most practical doctrine to me, of all the doctrines other than the doctrine of redemption itself. And I pray that it may be so for you as well. So let's um, consider a sampling of practical applications from this passage um, as uh, we draw this to a close. And I I have to share some quotes here from Calvin that I think are going to surprise you. I want you to think about what it is to see through the lens of God's providence, nature, the nature unfolding all around us every day. Calvin said this being admitted, in other words, discussing the total sovereignty of God, this being admitted, it is certain that not a drop of rain falls without the express command of God. Do you believe that? I mean, that is the God of scriptures. Now, this is going to surprise you from Calvin. Listen to how he processed it in passages like this. There is not one blade of grass. There is no color in this world that is not intended by God to make us rejoice. When you see through the lens of God's providence and the way that he has ordained and planned things for us to this level of detail, that's when we know that this doctrine has taken home in our souls. Therefore, as Paul testifies, election, which is the cause of good works, does not depend on man. The second point here is our dependence. If we really grab hold of this um, doctrine that Paul's giving us in Romans chapter 9, we are gripped with our total dependence on God which stands in total opposition to the mantra of the day, which is be independent. Be your own person. Don't be dependent on anybody or anything. And Calvin reminds us that this passage, which he's speaking to here, therefore, as Paul testifies, election, which is the cause of good works, 
does not depend on men. Election or the good works, in other words, um, flow from our loving, providential God. Here's a word on practical application as it relates to evangelism. Because I know some of you wrestle with a passage like this and say, okay, well, what, what's the deal with evangelism then? Do we really need to be busy about it if God is in the end doing the work? J.I. Packer says this, what then are we to say about the suggestion that a hearty faith in the absolute sovereignty of God is inimical, inimical to evangelism? We are bound to say that anyone who makes this suggestion thereby shows that he has simply failed to understand what the doctrine of divine sovereignty means. Not only does it undergird evangelism and uphold the evangelist by creating a hope of success that we could not otherwise ever entertain. As we're evangelizing to our children, as we're evangelizing to ourselves, to our spouses, our friends, imagine that God has given us a hope of success that could not be entertained if it was us doing the work. It also teaches us to bind together preaching and prayer And as it makes us bold and confident before men, so it also makes us humble and importunate before God. Good uh, reminders. And then lastly, this connection to hope from this whole discussion that we've had about providence. Calvin says this, True faith is ever connected with hope. For just as no one can expect and hope anything from God except he who will first believe his promises, so, on the other hand, it is necessary that our feeble faith, lest it grow weary and fail, be sustained and kept by patient hope and expectation. So hope and faith are in this continual dance. Um, I I, want to note, by the way, that this whole discussion in Romans 9 comes out of the tail end of Romans 8 when Paul is offering us the golden rope of hope and it's all based on God's sovereignty. Romans 8.28, he says, as we've just noted, for all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? And then you go to the end of Romans 8 and he's saying nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Powers, demons, dark forces, princes of the world, you name it, nothing can say. Why? Because God, the sovereign God of all that is, is promising you that you can lay hold of the invisible rope of hope because you know that he is sovereign over all things. This doesn't just lead us to a place where we have this ascent Um, to the idea of, okay, I'm just trusting in heaven's will. I love John Milton, but yet I argue not against heaven's hand or will, nor bait a jot of heart or hope, but still bear up and steer right onward. I mean, this is the orientation of somebody who gets, all right, God's sovereign, I'm pressing on. But God calls us to go much deeper and more intimate than that. What we're given here is the idea that the goodness of God is in control of the universe. That is a personal and powerful thing. It doesn't get any more personal and it doesn't get any more powerful 
than this idea that the goodness of God is in control of the universe. It creates followers of Christ like Corey Ten Boom, who, as we've been reminded, in a Nazi concentration camp with her sister, prayed and led the women in their barracks to pray as if they believed that the goodness of God was in control of the universe in their horrific situation, knowing that they could thank God for the fleas because it kept the rapist guards out of the barracks, and a million other things. And the, the, the idea that we could carry this kind of hope into the world because we understand this kind of scripture passage and the doctrine that we are being invited to lay hold of matters. In, in our world, the little story of Edison coming to our lives, it wasn't by accident. But God gives us these kinds of stories, all of us these kinds of stories, that are so coincidental that to believe that they were accidental would take more faith than to have the faith that God planned it exactly as it was. And each one of you, hopefully, know stories of God's personal providential goodness in your lives. All of that being said, it's true that the providence of God is like Hebrew words. Typically, it can only be read backwards. It's hard to see it unfolding because it usually unfolds in a way that we would not have it unfold. Our mind is not the mind of God. We're not promised that we're not going to suffer. We're not promised that we're not going to have loss. We're not promised that we're going to experience no injustice. We're followers of Christ. Christ experienced all those things and said, follow me. Which is one of the reasons why the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel spreading all over the world is so dangerous and why we need good Missions organizations, churches, preachers, etc., planted in those places to say this is not the gospel because when people lay hold of that as their hope and then they actually experience what it's like to take up your cross and follow Christ, they say, I've been sold a bill of goods and they think the bill of goods is the gospel when they were given a false gospel. Um, but laying hold of these things um, matters, and it matters uh, enormously. And to develop the practice of reading God's providence backwards to ourselves, to those who we love, to those who we're influencing and leading, not forgetting his mercies that are new to us each day, where the fingerprints of providence are all over it, and remind us of the grace and the mercy that has come to us in God's election um, by his call. This is um, part of what it is to experience gospel life in its fullness. Um, I do want you to know that Jane Perez is part of a video uh, that is called For the Good. It is 
the life and legacy of Dr. Harry Reeder. And in it, she makes the statement, my family is a Romans 828 family, and it's all connected to Harry's story and how Harry came to know Christ through a tragedy that then unfolding took even people who were bitter and opposed to God, like Jane, who as a consequence of losing her mother, the central player in this, um, in this story, herself turned from God for a time. But that incident of losing her mother resulted in a kaleidoscope of events that when they looked back on it, on Harry's death, and created this video, Story to Share, blew me away. And it will you too. I really encourage you to look at it if you haven't seen it. Um, it is a, um, an amazing reminder of all of these things and how um, we have great opportunity to lay hold of the sovereignty of God as a practical, living piece of the orthodoxy that shapes us. So um, that is um, our discussion. I know that we're at the top of the hour and we haven't had discussion. So um, for any of you who would like to stay after, I'm going to turn off the mic, but I'm going to stay here. I know, again, this is a challenging passage and much to consider here, but I hope you come away with the uh, compelling gratitude that comes from understanding that the goodness of God is in control of the universe. And more specifically, you, your lives, and uh, the lives of those that we love. Okay. Anybody have any uh, thoughts or questions? This is a really full passage. There's a lot to get through. I'm hoping you have opportunity to um, watch the video that I mentioned with regard to... Um, Harry and his life and the example uh, of what it is to believe in God's goodness, including in hard times. Um, anybody else have any thoughts? Jim, like do you want these questions on the recording? No, I don't think so.